We're at the end of Matthew chapter 2. The end of the what's called the infancy narratives or the early part of Jesus' life. But as we go through it, you'll realize this is a hard passage. This is not an easy passage. Often at Christmas, they're all joyful and happy. And this is not that way. So you need to listen carefully as to what God has for us this morning. From Matthew chapter 2, we'll be starting at verse 13 and reading through the end of the chapter. Remember, this follows right after the visit of the wise men. And so when it says, now when they, it's talking about the wise men. Matthew 2, verses 13 through 23, please listen carefully as this is God's word. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem, and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life were dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures, making us your people. You have brought us to this amazing gospel to learn more about your son, Jesus. You have brought us to a hard text this morning, so close to Christmas. This is a text that brings tears. This is a text that opens wounds. This is a text that challenges our faith. This is a text that forces us to see the real Jesus and the real reason why he had to come. So by your Spirit, open this gospel to us and help us to see Jesus. And as always for this, we need your grace. Give us the desire to learn from you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever checked out a website called Neighborhood Scout? The answer is probably no, unless you're thinking about moving. Modern technology has made it possible 
to sit at your computer and do a virtual search of any city, town, or neighborhood in the country. You can find out about the school system in Tarpon Springs, or the average income in Bar Harbor, or the rate of new construction in Tacoma, or the demographic makeup of Indianapolis. For that matter, you can break down a city like Indianapolis into many smaller neighborhoods and compare the stats for one part of the city against another. And none of that was possible until just a few years ago. And I mention that because this week I discovered a page on the Neighborhood Scout website where they rank the 100 safest cities in the United States. Using the latest crime data involving robbery, rape, murder, vehicle theft, and aggravated assault, they compiled the list of the safest places to live in the United States. And Heartland, Wisconsin came in at number one. Followed by Bergenfield, New Jersey at number two. Brentwood, Tennessee took the third spot, followed by Franklin, Massachusetts at number four. And coming in at number five was Newtown, Connecticut. Most of us have never heard of Newtown before last uh, Friday week. If you consider the website's uh, description, you can understand why people might consider this the ideal place to live. The education level in Newtown is considerably above the national average, and going by the numbers, violent crime there has been almost non-existent. It's a white-collar community, upper-middle class with excellent schools. Lots of new construction and some of the highest home prices in America. In fact, remarkably, it sounds a lot like Leesburg. Although, to be fair, not a single town in Virginia made the list. Here's a quote from the website about Newtown. It says, quote, Because of many things, Newtown is a very good place for families to consider with an enviable combination of good schools, low crime, college-educated neighbors who tend to support education because of their own experiences, and a high rate of home ownership and predominantly single-family properties. Newtown really has some of the features the families look for when choosing a good community to raise children. Is Newtown perfect? Of course not. And if you like frenetic nightlife, it will be far from your cup of tea. But overall, this is a solid community with many things to recommend it, as a family-friendly place to live. Clearly, Newtown is a good place to live. One can see why families have been drawn there. It earned its designation as one of the safest places in America. And then came the events of last Friday the 14th. And rather than repeat here all that we've seen and heard, I'd rather focus on the fact that in many ways, this is nothing New. Last year, there were 14,612 murders in the United States. That number has not gone below 14,000 since 1968. That's 281 murders a week, 40 a day. Said another way, if the murders were evenly distributed across all 50 states, which they're not, but if they were, that would be 292 murders per state per year. Divided by 12, that would mean each state would suffer the equivalent of a Newtown massacre every month. 
We are a murderous people. And we live in a blood-soaked world. And given all the uh, killing that's going on, it is to our credit that we can still be stunned by what happened in Newtown. It is a crime for which we have no categories. As I speak these words nine days later, there seems to be no clear explanation, no answer to the why question, nothing that would help us to make sense of the slaughter of the children of Newtown. Ever since we heard the news, we've been struggling to deal with it. And no one seems to have any good answers. Perhaps Max Lucado said it best in these sentences from a prayer he wrote on that Friday afternoon. He started it this way, Dear Jesus, it's a good thing you were born at night. This world sure seems dark. He's right. It does seem darker this week. Odd that just a few days before Christmas we're talking about the darkness of the world. The governor of Connecticut said it another way, evil visited this community today. He was right too. What happened was pure evil, undiluted, and satanic. What else do you call it when a man takes a rifle and kills his mother and then kills 20 innocent school children and six adults? That's what evil is. That's what evil does. And many have commented on how this horrific event took place just a few days before Christmas. It would be horrific at any time of year, but somehow seems worse during this season. And all of that leads me to make two observations. One, if this can happen in Newtown, then where can you go to be safe? Because everybody went to Newtown to be safe. It was number five in the country. It was the safe place to be. They moved there to get away from things like this. And who can blame them? Newtown is not East St. Louis or West Memphis or inner city Detroit. Death is everywhere, all around us, all the time. And most of the time we can push it away and keep it at arm's length. But sometimes death comes in unbidden, unannounced, and quite unwelcome. Anyone seeking a quiet and peaceful life where these things never happen has picked the wrong planet to be born on. Second observation is it shouldn't surprise us that we need to talk about darkness at Christmas. The signs are always there. From the beginning, the birth of Christ was fraught with difficulty. Mary became pregnant under strange circumstances. Joseph and Mary made a dangerous journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem in the latter stages of her pregnancy. When they got to Bethlehem, there was no room for them in the inn. Jesus was born in a manger, not in the peaceful scene of the children's Christmas program, but in a stable, perhaps in a cave, at night when Mary and Joseph were alone in the world. And when the Magi came to Jerusalem and asked about the baby who had been born, king of the Jews, king at the time, Herod, was so disturbed that he ordered the slaughter of the baby boys of Bethlehem. The birth of Christ was fraught with difficulty. Matthew tells the story this way in verse 16 of our text. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. Excuse me. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem 
And in all that region who were two years or old or younger or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. The gospel doesn't begin in comfort and ease. It begins in dismay. It begins with an urgent message in the middle of the night to get up and flee. For Herod is seeking the life of the infant boy. It begins in fear and foreboding and uncertainty. The family flees to Egypt and stays there. Perhaps they sell the incense and the myrrh and use the gold to pay their way. What will become of them? Well, to understand this passage, this story fully, you have to know that this terrible story is told in the context of prophecy. And in particular, the fulfillment of very specific prophecies and some general prophecies. We find them here in Matthew 2, our passage for today. And we see that the first prophecy we learn about is actually a prophecy about Israel. A prophecy about Israel. That's the first blank. I-S-R-A-E-L. Says, starting at verse 13, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. We learn in this passage that Christ's person and life circumstances are foretold in Scripture. This passage teaches us that the person of Christ, who he is, his nature, what he's like, his life, the activities, the events, the circumstances of his life, all of his life, all these things are foretold in the Scriptures of the Old Testament. We learn in this passage the Old Testament prophecy bears witness to the life of Christ. And we learn it not once and not twice, but three times. Matthew has a theme which flows throughout his gospel that the life and times and the death and resurrection of Christ are all a fulfillment of Scripture. And so he has a pattern that you'll read throughout the book of Matthew. It says this happened in order to fulfill that which was said by the prophets. Twice already in our story of Matthew, we have seen that formed used. And now he says this event in Jesus' life happened to fulfill prophecy in the Old Testament. And one of the key things we need to know in order to understand the Gospel of Matthew is first that Matthew is writing to a largely Jewish audience. And so in order to persuade the Jews that Jesus is the true Messiah, the Christ, he constantly draws upon the Hebrew Scriptures our Old Testament, to demonstrate how Christ fulfills numerous prophecies. However, there's a small problem with this. Because many of the prophecies that Matthew says Jesus fulfills aren't prophecies about the Messiah, but rather are prophecies about Israel. And by incorporating these prophecies into his gospel, Matthew is making the claim that Jesus is the true Israel. 
And what we're going to find out is Matthew understands Jesus to be the fulfillment, not only of the explicit prophecies about the Messiah, but also of all of Israel's history. He is another Moses. He is another David. Indeed, he is another Israel herself. This is what we call typology. The history of God's people beforehand foretelling the life and ministry of Christ because he's the object and goal of that history. So let me direct your attention to verse 15. Matthew says this was uh, was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And the passage that he's quoting from is Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, that says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. There's the fact that Jesus will come out of Egypt. Spoken by the prophet Hosea hundreds of years before about Israel. After the fact. If you're thinking it's about the Exodus, Hosea came after. He's reminding. Hosea is not really... It's a prophecy in past tense almost. He's reminding the people of what God has done. And Matthew says this is fulfilled in the life of Jesus as he goes down into Egypt uh, to escape Herod and his family later brings him out. This prophecy about Israel is fulfilled in the life of Jesus. But that's only the first of three prophecies in this passage. The second one we see is the hard one because it's a prophecy about weeping. The prophecy of weeping, starting at verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. First of all, there's a big difference between Bethlehem now and Bethlehem then. Today, Bethlehem is a bustling town of about 28,000 people. But back then, it was a tiny village. It was the little town of the Christmas Carol, six miles south of Jerusalem. Its population in Jesus' day would have been no more than a few hundred people. How many baby boys would be under the age of two in Bethlehem? No one knows, but the number wouldn't have been large. Most commentators think it would have been right around 20. And rounded up by Herod's soldiers, they were slaughtered on the spot. Run through with swords and spears, A brutal, vicious, bloodthirsty murder of innocent children. Who can understand this? Why would a man do this? What was he thinking? It may help to understand uh, what happened if you know a little bit about Herod the Great. At this point, he's very old, he's very sick, and he's very nearly dead. He's been in power for over 40 years and has proven to be both clever and cruel. And like all despotic rulers, 
He held tightly uh, to the reins of power and he brutally removed anyone who got in his way. And over the years, he has killed many, many people. He killed his brother-in-law. He killed his mother-in-law. And he killed his wife. Above everything else, Herod the Great was a killer. That was his nature. He killed out of spite. He killed to stay in power. Human life meant nothing to him. Perhaps his basic character can best be seen by one incident in the year 7 B.C. Herod's an old man now. He's been in power 41 years. He knows he doesn't have much longer to live. And word comes that his sons are planning to overthrow him. Sons by his late wife. Late wife because he killed her. And so he orders his sons put to death by strangling. Caesar Augustus commented, recorded by the historian Josephus, that Caesar Augustus said, it is safer to be Herod's sow than his son. Think about it. He killed his wife, his mother-in-law, his brother-in-law, his three sons, and hundreds of others. Killing is what he did best. That's why the critics who question this story and say Matthew made it up are wrong. Because to the contrary, it fits with everything else we know about Herod. And if he didn't have a problem killing his own sons, he won't have a problem killing yours. And he wouldn't have thought twice about killing 20 baby boys in a little town like Bethlehem. But it meant something to those parents who forever lost their sons. Their tears were those of mothers who would not be comforted. He says they're like the tears of Rachel. The prophet uh, Jeremiah was actually uh, writing about the exile. Rachel, if you remember from Genesis, she's long dead and buried. But her tomb is on a hillside which overlooks one of the main paths leading out of the country. And so as the people left during the exile, He said Rachel was weeping for her children. And Matthew says, taking that passage, the person from Genesis, the time of the exile from the prophet Jeremiah, and says we're going to apply it to this scene because Rachel is weeping again. If you know the story of Rachel, this would be the third time. This loss is not lessened because uh, we think we can figure out the story or we understand it. Nothing can bring these little boys back to their grieving parents. Evil visited Bethlehem that night. Nothing would ever be the same. In the history of the church, this night is called the slaughter of the holy innocents. And after 2,000 years, we remember Herod for this one act. Now, in verse 17, Matthew says, then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. In the passage, Herod has slain the sons under the age of two in Bethlehem in its immediate environment. It's a horrible deed, a cowardly deed for which he deserves not only everlasting uh, torment, but utter vilification in this world. And yet this deed, he says, was prophesied by Jeremiah. 
There would be a day when Rachel would weep again in Ramah for her children, for she would not be able to gather them back to her lap. They would be gone, taken by a wicked monarch serving his own ends. And this, Matthew says, is prophesied in the Old Testament. And once again, Matthew points out this biblical pattern. Remember, Rachel's in her tomb. And it was said even in Jeremiah's time, this is a beautiful figure of speech to weep for the exiles as they're taken out of the promised land. So in this passage, we already have reference to the two greatest events in Israel's history, the exodus and the exile. So here she weeps for the dead and mourning mothers of Bethlehem. And of course, there is another parallel with Israel's history here. If you remember, Pharaoh tried to do this, kill the little boys at the beginning of Exodus, chapter 1. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. We discover in Exodus 2 that one son is spared. His name is Moses. And Moses would someday save the people of Israel by leading them out of Egypt. So we see this constant link back, not just to prophecy, but to the Old Testament. But there's another prophecy here. Prophecy about what's happening here. But it's a New Testament prophecy. And it comes to us from the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 12. It's the prophecy of the dragon. The prophecy of the dragon. We're going to jump to Revelation chapter 12. It's the whole chapter. I'm just going to read the first six verses. It says, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head was a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. I'm sure that's all crystal clear. In Revelation, if you remember... Several years ago, we went through the book of Revelation. I actually preached on this text in March of 2010. And we're given a glimpse behind the curtain. We can see the author of history at work. We're told that a woman clothed with the sun appears as the first great sign. And then soon afterwards, there's a second, another sign, a great red dragon. And the conflict between the woman and the dragon dominates the drama of Revelation 12 which begins in verse 4 with the dragon waiting to consume the son to whom the woman is giving birth. <coughs> the strength, intelligence, and ferocity of the dragon seem to make him an overwhelming adversary to this woman 
and her newborn son. And yet the dragon's plot is foiled with split-second speed as we read there in verse 5 of Revelation 12. She gave birth to a male child, one who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That phrase is important. But her child was caught up to God in his throne. And this last statement summarizes the life, suffering, and exaltation of Jesus Christ. Neither the dragon's deadly strategy or his exercise of raw power is enough to destroy the seed of the woman, the lion lamb who gains victory by being slain. And the chapter closes with the dragon's frustrated attempts to destroy the woman, her son, and the rest of her children. Now the woman in Revelation 12 symbolizes several things all at once. She symbolizes both Israel and the church as the redeemed people of God, though the church is also referred to as the rest of her offspring. But most importantly, she symbolizes the mother of the promised seed who would slay the serpent. Because this conflict is far older than one might think, it began, as Mike referred to, in his prayer, all the way back in the Garden of Eden when the serpent deceived Adam and Eve in Genesis 3, and God pronounced his curse upon the serpent in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. It's clear in this vision in Revelation 12 that the woman is the mother of the Messiah because it tells us in verse 5 that the child is the one who will rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That's a direct quote from Psalm chapter 2. It's a messianic, uh, messianic psalm, and it is the most quoted Old Testament text in all of the New Testament. And Psalm 2 recounts God's decree anointing the Messiah as the universal king. And that's how it's quoted here. Psalm 2, verses 7 through 9, we read, I will tell you of the decree the Lord said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. <coughs> However, Psalm 2 opens with the kings of this world conspiring against the Lord and his Christ. Psalm 2 at the beginning says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And then in Revelation 12, we see that has now been reversed. That's what's being celebrated by the 24 elders who worship him at the end of Revelation 11, where they say, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. <clears throat> the nations raged against the Lord God Almighty in Psalm 2. But now he's taken power and we're told he'll reign forever and ever. In Revelation, we're told that this incident in Matthew is the earthly playing out of this cosmic conflict between God and Satan. Let's go back to Matthew 2 in our last prophecy of this passage. 
starting at verse 19. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life were dead. Now he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. When he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. First thing you need to know is Archelaus is worse than Herod. Herod's pretty bad, but the Romans left him in power. Archelaus ruled four years. He was so bad, the Romans removed him. So, we're not told exactly what he did. We know what Herod did. We know Archelaus is worse than Herod. So the angel says, don't go back there. He sends him to Nazareth. And the prophecy says, he shall be called the Nazarene. The problem is this phrase, he shall be called the Nazarene, doesn't appear in any prophetic writings. Indeed, it doesn't even appear in the Old Testament. And usually when we have a prophetic fulfillment without an actual prophetic quotation, what it's telling you is this is the teaching of all of the Scripture. This teaching pervades Scripture. If you think about it, if Jesus had come to be known as Jesus of Bethlehem, well, that would have the aura of one who comes from a royal city. Bethlehem was the city of David. But Jesus of Nazareth carries the overtones of contempt. We'll read later in the Gospels, the question is asked, can anything good come from Nazareth? It reminds us of who Jesus would be. Isaiah 53 says, He would be despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. So here in verse 23, the truth that the prophets taught that the Messiah, when he came, would be despised by his own people is just that whole truth is encapsulated in that phrase that he shall be called the Nazarene. He will be one from Galilee, not from Judah. He'll be from what would be assumed to be unclean bloodlines, not from a royal line. Surely he's not going to be one to admire or emulate, to follow, to obey, and certainly not to worship. Not coming from Nazareth. Over and over, Matthew tells you in this passage, Jesus, in his person, in his life, in his circumstances, is here to fulfill Scripture. Matthew wants you to understand that everything in the life of Christ is set forth, is bounded by the Scriptures as Jesus' life unfolds he is unfolding what God has revealed to the prophets. Jesus' life is an explanation of the Old Testament. Let's shift the scene for a moment to Christmas Day, 1864. 1864. You know your history, you know we're approaching the end of the Civil War. After four bloody years, the Civil War is slowly drawing to a close. Already half a million soldiers have died. Many more would die before the war would finally end. And on that Christmas day in 1864, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow 
you probably remember from high school literature classes. He penned a poem and became the beloved Christmas carol that we know of as I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. And that uh, poem, that carol, starts with these words, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play. And wild and sweet, the words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Didn't know he wrote that in the middle of a war. There's a story behind the poem that most people don't know. Because shortly after the Civil War began, Longfellow's beloved wife, Fanny, died after being terribly burned in a household accident. And her death just threw Longfellow into utter despair. And in his journal for Christmas Day, 1862, two years earlier, he wrote, A Merry Christmas, say the children, but that is no more for me. And then in 1863, just a year before, his eldest son, Charles, was severely wounded and crippled in battle. And out of his own sadness and in response to the carnage of the Civil War, for Christmas Day, 1863, he wrote this. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. He wrote that the year before. He wrote, I heard the bells on Christmas Day. But lately, these words seem all too true. Hate is strong. Where is our hope at Christmas time? I want to ask you a question that I can't fully answer, but it's one that we all think about at different times and in different ways. If the angel knew about the impending massacre at Bethlehem, why did he warn Mary and Joseph and not the others? On one level, we know that Mary and Joseph were warned so that Jesus could be preserved from Herod's murderous intentions. But what do we say about the other boys of Bethlehem? What about their parents? Were they not also babies precious to the Lord? Does the Lord hear the wails that arise from the little town of Bethlehem? Here's my best attempt at an answer. First, we know the Lord does care, and He does hear the cries of those who hurt deeply. Psalm 34 tells us the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. God has promised to do that. Millions of people can testify to God's presence in the midst of the worst pain and the greatest loss. But this truth, as wonderful as it is, doesn't cancel our very real pain and it doesn't reverse the loss. This much we know, God always has a bigger plan than we can ever see from where we sit. He preserved his son so that one day his son could die on the cross for the sins of the world. These babies died now so that the baby Jesus would grow up and die later. Jesus had to escape this time so that he would not escape the next time. If we look at it in its broadest perspective, Jesus escaped the first time so that he wouldn't escape the second time, so that we would escape for all time. Jesus escaped the first time, 
so that he wouldn't escape the second time so that we would escape for all time. Now I understand that this truth would have been small comfort to the weeping mothers of Bethlehem. And no comfort either for the weeping mothers of Newtown. On that night it seemed like a senseless slaughter. And the next night it seemed the same. One week later it still made no sense. One year later there's no explanation. A decade later no one could understand why these babies had to die. But run the clock forward about 33 years and things come into focus. Because outside the walls of Jerusalem a man is dying on a cross. The one baby Herod could not kill. And now he offers himself up for the sins of the world. And in the end, he died too. If he had died at Bethlehem, he couldn't have died at Calvary. All of this is part of God's eternal plan. Somewhere in my reading since last Friday, I ran across a statement that went something like this. God declared war at Bethlehem. Hardly the way we think about it, but it's not unbiblical. Ever since Eden, a battle has been raging between God and Satan for control of planet Earth. When Adam and Eve sinned, Satan struck a blow for evil. And from that time until this time, sin has reigned in every corner of this planet and found a home in every human heart. All the pain and suffering we see around us, every bit of it can be traced back to that fateful moment in the Garden of Eden. And since then, the armies of evil have been on the march in every generation. They have landed wave after wave of soldiers on beachheads around the world. And there are times it seems that the battle is over and evil will reign unmolested forever. Satan struck with terrible fury that last Friday in Newtown, Connecticut. Evil pervaded that peaceful New England community. But if Christmas means anything, it is this. God wins in the end. At Bethlehem, he launches a mighty counteroffensive that continues to this day. And it started with a tiny baby boy named Jesus, born in a scandalous way in a stable to unmarried teenagers who were homeless and alone. And the world had no idea what was happening in Bethlehem that night. And we only understand in retrospect. That same battle of evil and good continues to this present moment and will continue into the future until the day when Jesus returns and defeats evil once and for all. Perhaps that's what led Longfellow to write one final verse to his poem. In answer to his own despair, he wrote, then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Rightly understood, there is a world of truth in that final verse. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. At Bethlehem, God struck a blow to liberate the world from sin and death. And God's frontline soldier was a tiny baby boy who was one of the boys of Bethlehem. Don't take him for granted. There is in this little baby all the strength of deity. The power of God is in those tiny fists. He has strength which is divine. Whatever he desires, he's able to achieve. The baby wrapped in swaddling cloths is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the Lion of the tribe of Judah, 
the undefeated Son of God, the leader of the armies of heaven. And because He is who He is, Longfellow was right. Jesus is the undefeated Son of God. The wrong shall fail. The right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. I urge you, say those words aloud with me. The wrong shall fail. The right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. We need to remind ourselves in these sad days that the devil will not have the final word. Though he strikes many painful blows, he cannot win because the battle belongs to the Lord. In one sense, the slaughter of the boys of Bethlehem is a perpetual reminder at the very beginning of Christ's earthly life that this is why he had to come. This is what Christmas is really all about. And so be encouraged, my friends. Do not despair. Through your tears, lift up your eyes. Look again to Bethlehem, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That sleeping child will rise to battle and no one will stand against him. The boys of Bethlehem will be avenged and every enemy will be defeated. Better days are coming. In that confidence, let us trust in God and commit ourselves to Jesus Christ now and forever because these things are true. From this text, I can wish you a very Merry Christmas because the King has come. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, our Lord, thank You that You have given us a King. This Advent, just a few days before Christmas, we look forward to His coming and we look forward to His saving. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and see our Savior. Help us to see Him as a king in a stable. Help us to see Him as the Lamb who was slain, returning as the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Help us to see Him as a Messiah who is rejected and despised, but who returns as the warrior king who conquers all enemies. Help us to understand that the kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. Amen.